It was Christmas morning in Lexington, Kentucky, and everyone else in the family had opened their gifts. The last gift was extravagant for the youngest, a little 10-year-old girl. This girl happened to love horses a lot and uh, really wanted one. All of her friends had a horse, but she only had horse picture books and stuffed animals. Was this the year? Well, she opened a little wrap box with a poem inside, which ended like this. And out you ran to the stable with joy to find not a toy, but life to enjoy. Well, with eyes twinkling, and like a flash, she ran out to the stable, and there in one of the stalls was a horse, a beautiful mare, and it was, it was for her. It was for her. She turned and effectually, affectionately looked up into the eyes of her father, who was standing there beside, and said, Daddy, is this really mine? And the father responded, yes, darling, it's absolutely yours. I bought it for you. Now let me help you up. And I want to see you smile. And I want to see you laugh and hear you laugh as you ride quickly in the open meadows. Well, that would be a great scene, wouldn't it? Great scene. But what if it went like this? Daddy... Is it really mine? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. If you work hard to pay for the rest of it, it's yours. I put a down payment on this horse. I wanted you to have the best, but I was short 500 grand. So you're going to need to get a few jobs, honey, and work for this thing. Maybe for the rest of your life, you may never pay it off. Because we don't have enough money for this horse. Look, I struck a deal. But you must know that in the fine print of the contract is the possibility that your horse could be taken away from you if you can't keep up the payments, if you can't keep the pace. And and I want you to enjoy the horse. I really do. But it's up to you now. Don't mess this up. Look, I I just can't be responsible for what happens to your horse. If I could buy it for you, I would, but I can't. So it's up to you. So I hope you enjoy your gift. Well, there goes the warm and fuzzy, right? That's out the door. Not much of a gift, right? More like a burden. Daddy should pay for the horse in full. Without reservation or stipulation. After all, it's an extravagant gift. Now, of course, the little girl is going to need to care for the horse. But she is reassured when her father says, it's yours. Now enjoy it. Enjoy the horse. It's yours. Care for it. For it will always be yours. Is your salvation secure? Is your salvation secure? Can you be assured that you are really saved? Now, some of you may experience a a great bit of anxiety over questions like that. Now, I've struggled with whether I'm saved before. It's not a fun struggle. What about you? You might see salvation as God's gift to you, but only as a potential gift if you can work hard enough to keep it. 
And you bear the weight of trying not to lose it. You live life as if you're trying not to lose this salvation. You might think that your obedience secures your salvation. Instead of trusting God who graciously gives you salvation and secures it for you with His unending grace. Is any of us secure in our salvation? And this morning, I want you to hear Jesus and to find hope and peace and comfort and love and confidence and assurance. I want you to enjoy Christ and the assurance He gives His sheep. The words of Jesus in John 10 should build your confidence this morning in Jesus Christ and it should fuel your obedience to Him. Jesus is the good shepherd because He keeps every one of His sheep in His eternally unbreakable grip. Look at the stunning beauty of John 10 and rest in Him. That's the message for this morning. As the old Sevilla Martin song goes, God will take care of you. And He will. God has secured the eternal life and joy of every single one of His sheep. Well, the setting had changed. In John 7, the heated conversation began at the Feast of Booths. The last week we, uh, we saw in John 10.21 that that conversation ended, but here in verse 22 a new conversation began at the Feast of Dedication. It was wintertime, likely December, and they were in the temple. The crucifixion of Jesus was around four months away. We're building there. The Feast of Dedication was also called Hanukkah. You might have heard of that. Only mentioned here in John 10. It was an annual celebration commemorating an important historical event for the Jews. Around 170 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian ruler, laid siege on Jerusalem. It was violent. He burned Jerusalem and desecrated the temple by doing this. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple. That would be unthinkable for Jews. Then in 164 BC, it was called the Maccabean Revolt, a guerrilla army uh, led by a Jew named Judas Maccabee conquered Jerusalem, rededicated the temple, and purified and reinstated temple sacrifices upon the altar of God. The Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, celebrates the event of that temple rededication. Now, God never commanded Hanukkah all right, we don't have to celebrate Hanukkah. It's not one of the biblical festivals, so to speak. But Jesus was part of it, nonetheless, walking through the temple. The, the temple was probably loaded with people at that time. John tells us that it was winter, probably to explain why Jesus was walking in the colonnade of Solomon, which was a covered walkway in the eastern part of the temple where some of Solomon's temple still remained. It was an open porch with a roof supported by columns with only one wall to shield people from the cold and inclement weather in the winter and then the hot beating sun uh, in the summer. So this day was likely a chilly day. Jesus is walking in the colonnade of Solomon. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, John is highlighting here something significant. People continue in their stubborn unbelief because they are not Jesus' sheep. People continue 
in their stubborn unbelief because they are not Jesus' sheep. The phrase gathered around him is used often in hostile situations. So this is not gathering around a campfire to sing songs together. This was antagonistic. This was a tense moment. Hadn't Jesus sufficiently explained who he was? They wanted explicit from his mouth, I am the Messiah in a public setting. Now, why would that be important to them? Why would they want Jesus to come right out and say, I am the Messiah? Think about it. Here was this big Jewish festival, lots of people celebrating a military victory and rededication of the temple. And if someone stands up and declares, I am the Christ, this is going to get some blood moving and some feet moving, right? Christ was a politically and militarily loaded term. The crowd would have reacted if he would have said that. And there it is. The Jewish leaders wanted to destroy Jesus. And a public claim of Messiahship would have given them justification to take action to destroy him, to take him down. So instead of saying, yep, I'm the Messiah, Jesus had a so much better answer. Look at verse 25. I told you and you do not believe. See, Jesus wasn't ambiguous. He told them who he was. It it was uh, discernible to first century Jews. The problem was their stubborn unbelief. So Jesus continued, verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Well, he said that before in John 5, 36. In other words, see what I do, watch what I do, and what I do will tell you who I am. They will bear witness about me. Now, why didn't these Jews believe? With overwhelming evidence and teaching, making it very clear. Well, he told them. He told them what, who he was. But first, I, I, I want you to see what wasn't the reason for their unbelief. Their unbelief wasn't caused by insufficient evidence. And we see that because they saw the miracles. They saw the evidence that he had done. It wasn't because his miracles were tricks or somehow inauthentic because, again, they saw the evidence. It wasn't because Jesus was an unconvincing evangelist or apologist or somehow an ineffective savior because Jesus accomplished God's will perfectly. Jesus said he always did what was pleasing to God. He said he kept his Father's commandments. He said he accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. God's will was for Jesus to come and to save every single one of the sheep, and he absolutely did that. So why didn't they believe? Jesus told them straight out in verse 26, you do not believe because You are not among my sheep. The word because is the Greek word hati, which introduces the cause or the reason that their unbelief existed. Why didn't they unbelieve? That's what this hati is going to introduce. And so afterwards it says, you are not among my sheep. They didn't believe because God hadn't given them to Jesus and they weren't his sheep. Verse 29, if you take a look at that real quickly, says God gives the sheep to Jesus. And verse 28 says Jesus gives eternal life to his sheep and they will never perish. Every sheep that the Father gives to Jesus will receive eternal life. They will believe and they will be saved. Every sheep is secure. These Jews were not among 
the sheep of Jesus. Therefore, they did not believe. That's what Jesus is saying. The word order of of verse 26 is really important. Jesus didn't say, you are not among my sheep because you do not believe. That's not what he said. As if faith was the deciding factor of being a sheep. Faith doesn't fundamentally make someone a sheep. God does. But faith is the inevitable response of every sheep. People believe precisely because they are sheep given to Jesus by the Father. This is another persuasive verse for God's sovereign election. But we must be careful to not, in saying that, diminish the responsibility of every human being. The Jews chose not to believe. They are responsible for their unbelief. D.R. Carson wrote this, quote, Neither Jesus nor John means to reduce the moral responsibility of the opponents in the slightest. That they are not Jesus' sheep does not excuse them. It indicts them. End of quote. God is not to blame for unbelief. And I understand this is mysterious. And I understand this is complicated, but folks, this is true because this is what Jesus said. Imagine how it was for Jews to hear Jesus say to them directly, you are not among my sheep. Unthinkable, offensive, but Jesus was right because sheep believe and follow Jesus and they refused because they weren't his sheep. True Israel is defined by faith, not by ethnicity. Listen to the precious words of Jesus. You've got to take these in because it both indicts the leaders who weren't his sheep and at the very same time, it comforts all the sheep. So if you're a sheep here this morning, you will hear these words and treasure them. If you're not a sheep, this probably will be like, what? So in the same indictment for these leaders is the great comfort for all the sheep. He was a masterful, masterful uh, speaker and teacher. Every sheep of Jesus responds to his voice with relationship and obedience because they are his sheep. Relationship and obedience. A few years ago, Christina and I went to her cabin, uh, her parents' cabin in uh, Liberty, Pennsylvania. And it's a wonderful place, it's a scenic, it sits up on a little hill and you overlook this lake and there's, there's farmland and there's wildlife to see and there's pine trees, I love pine trees, and uh, it's just a wonderful place. Well, down from the cabin is a 50-gallon drum, and that 50-gallon drum sits there because before we leave, we were supposed to burn the trash. So I take the trash down to this 50-gallon drum and uh, I, I doused it with some gasoline. And uh, kids, don't try this at home. I lit a match. Uh, what do you think I did with that match? Well, that's right. That's right. I, I took that tiny little flame, and with my face pretty close to the area immediately above the opening of the 50-gallon drum. I just tossed it in. Boom! I mean, it, it, I went back. I still have my eyebrows, so this is good. I never said I was Einstein, but uh, 
it blew up. It was, it was close. I mean, it could have been bad. So I, I hope I learned my lesson with that. When gasoline meets a flame, it explodes. It goes boom. Why? It's gasoline, and gasoline happens to be flammable. We don't question in our minds, I wonder if this gas is going to explode. No, it will. Now think about God's sheep. When Jesus calls his sheep by name, they come. They respond to his voice with relationship and obedience because they are his sheep. He tosses the flame of his effectual call and the sheep go boom with relationship and obedience. Verse 26 is true, but the inverse of verse 26 is also true. Someone believes because they are among Christ's sheep. Why do you and I believe? Why do you and I have faith? Because God graciously gave us to Jesus. Jesus called us out and we have come to believe. Verses 3 and 4 get at this. Verse 16 gets at this. This is the, the point of John six thirty seven. Listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Our coming depends on God's giving. Faith is subsequent to being given to Jesus. Our salvation is fully dependent upon God's sovereign mercy and grace and love and tenderness. The sovereign grace of God is something for us to rejoice in, something for us to celebrate, something for us to be comforted by because Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verses 27 and 30 through 30 make God's sovereign and irresistible grace so wonderfully apparent. It's right there. These verses are, are pure hope for you, sheep. Pure assurance for every sheep. And so I want you to challenge you to rejoice in what you hear. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Four key concepts from verse 27. Number one, owned. Owned. Jesus said, my sheep, my sheep. And look at verse 29. God has given Jesus sheep. They belong to Jesus. Number two, called. Every sheep hears the voice of Jesus. They know his voice because he effectually called them. Number three, known. Jesus knows the sheep. He gives relationship to them. This echoes verse 14 as well. Number four, following. Every sheep follows Jesus. They obey him. They, uh, Jesus leads, and they obey, and they follow closely behind. Now, we'll come back to verse 27, but Jesus used verses 27 through 30 to substantiate his indictment against the Jewish leaders in verse 26. He explained God's grace for the true sheep and indirectly showed how they were not his true sheep. And though his words are an indictment for unbelievers, they are also among the most wonderful words of Scripture for the sheep. And this is just hopeful. If you have ever struggled, really think about this, if you've ever struggled with the assurance of your salvation, whether God has actually saved you, whether you can somehow tomorrow fling into rebellion, giving it all up, these verses have the power to liberate you from your doubt, from the oppressive attacks of doubt. These verses will help you believe 
God, will help you trust God's tremendous love for you. You are secure in his love, sheep. Every sheep of Jesus is forever secure in his eternally unbreakable grip. You see, when a little child is in the middle of a a thunderstorm and he's really scared, the arms of the Father around them offer so much comfort and solace and peace. And his words to them give them peace. Daddy's here. Daddy's here. I, I will protect you. I will care for you. No need to be fearful. Daddy is here. That child falls into peaceful dreams that night because the father is strong and the father is good and the father loves them forever. These verses are your comfort in the storm. Every sheep belongs to the good shepherd and is therefore eternally secure. Jesus never loses any of his sheep. You need to hear that. Jesus never, ever, ever loses any of his sheep. He will never, ever lose you. God's saving grace is God's keeping grace. God's saving grace is his persevering grace and his enduring grace. That's why we call it amazing grace. He will keep you. Many people, they live under this fear of losing their salvation, but that is an unnecessary burden to bear. Because as we'll see in a moment, Jesus never loses sheep. Not only do I want you to see eternal security in the text, but I want you to celebrate it in your life. I want you to treasure it that it's true of you. I want this doctrine to comfort you and to give you peace and joy in your life. Here it is. Number one, Jesus gives each of his sheep eternal life. Jesus said, verse 28, I give them eternal life. He's so generous to actually give eternal life. He chose to give his sheep eternal life. Eternal life is the abundant life found in Christ, verses 9 and 10. If Jesus wants to give eternal life and he does want to give eternal life, then the sheep are going to have it forever. Forever. One study note said that eternal life by definition can never be taken away. That's absolutely right. Jesus didn't say, I give them life. For a while, it's eternal. It's eternal. If Jesus only made salvation possible for the sheep, then he really didn't give them anything, did he? He actually gives all the sheep eternal life. Number two, none of Jesus' sheep will perish ever. Period. Now, this is so wonderful. No sheep of Jesus will ever perish. That's a promise made by Jesus. Jesus said, verse 28, take a look, they will never perish. Now, the Greek goes like this. Not, not, they will perish into the age. The Greek word order, more free, obviously, than ours. Not, not, they will perish into the age. The combination of the two Greek words, ou and may, intensify the negative. The sheep will absolutely never, ever, ever perish. Jesus promised that. Jesus doesn't allow his sheep to be lost again. He is good to save all his sheep, to find his sheep by his sovereign grace and power, and he is good to keep them saved. I know someone who believes that they have been saved multiple times. I don't remember the amount multiple times. According to them, they keep falling in and out of God's grace. That's not a healthy way to live. 
How do you have joy in that system? That belief is oppressive. Because, and, and it's impossible for that belief to be true because Jesus never loses a sheep. John 3.16 teaches that no sheep will ever perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish, but have, possess eternal life. Jesus said in John 6.39, and this is the will of him who sent me, and we know that the Father God sent him, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And we know that Jesus always does what his Father wants him to do. So he will secure the sheep. He will hold on to them forever. He will raise them up on the last day. He said that he would raise up on the last day multiple times in John And he meant what he said. So if any person, follow the logic, if any person loses their salvation, then Jesus has not accomplished his mission or fulfilled God's will for him because God was not to lose any of the sheep. Aren't we glad Jesus is eternally faithful to God? Jesus prayed to God in John 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Only Judas was lost because he wasn't a sheep, and the scripture that was written many years before Judas was born needed to be fulfilled, and it was. We could go to Romans 8 and plenty of other passages, but we need to move on. Number three, No one can ever snatch any sheep from Jesus' eternally unbreakable grip. Jesus has a firm grip on you, sheep. He will hold on to you forever. His grip is longer and stronger than even Fixident. I know, that's hard to believe. Or Gorilla Glue or Tungsten Inert Gas Welding. Does that make sense to anybody? Let's move on. Um, I don't even know what that is. Jesus is more secure than Fort Knox. I saw this little diagram of Fort Knox. I'd, I'd never seen it before on, uh, on the internet and was like, oh my goodness, it's like granite, thick granite walls. You could drop an atomic bomb on Fort Knox and it would be like, ping. You know, I don't even think it would be affected. Jesus is more secure than Fort Knox. Jesus said, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Can anything, ask the question, pry the sheep from the hand of the good shepherd? No, not even the sheep themselves can wander beyond the reach of the good shepherd's grace. And you're like, whoa, study verses 5 and 8. Study Matthew 18 where the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go looking for the one sheep To bring him back, that's the relentless grace of God for every single one of his sheep. Even wandering sheep will be graciously sought after by God and brought back to the good shepherd. He loses none. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 14, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. None will perish, my friends. Number four, the Father has given each of the sheep to Jesus as an unreturnable gift Hey, we all like to return gifts sometimes. I probably shouldn't say that. I don't know. Maybe I, I, ret- I returned 50% of the gifts you gave me this Christmas. I'm just kidding. I didn't. But we return things to the, sco- to the store. God never does. God never does. Jesus said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Once again, the sovereign and supreme God gave every sheep to Jesus and Jesus keeps them all. Plenty of evidence. Number five. No one can ever snatch any sheep from the Father's unbreakable 
grip. Jesus added, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You have my hand and you have the Father's hand. Not only is Jesus holding on, but the Father is holding on. God's grip is never slippery. It's unbreakable. Number six, the Father and His Son work together to keep the sheep in their eternally unbreakable gift. Jesus and His Father are working in divine concert to eternally secure and keep the sheep. Jesus holds on tightly. The Father holds on tightly. Together, they never drop a sheep. Jesus said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And this, no doubt, is a Trinitarian verse showing divine distinction between the Father and the Son, yet showing oneness between the Father and the Son. But this verse solidifies verses 28 and 29. Jesus and His Father are working as one together to preserve and to protect the eternal security of every sheep. These are some of the most precious and powerful and comforting words in the Bible for Christians. And I hope that when you hear them, you're actually comforted by them, that you find them precious and that they give you joy. All of these six points we just covered prove that the shepherd is good, that he loves and desires the sheep so much that he keeps everyone for himself. He wants the sheep. He would not let any of them go. This is what we call the doctrine of eternal security. And at this point, at least one objection to eternal security arises. Here's the objection. Once saved, always saved can't be true because it gives people a license to sin with no fear of judgment. No repercussions if I want to just live however I want, indulge in sin, you telling me once I'm saved, I can do all of that? Well, here are a few problems with that view, with that ob- objection. It makes fear the motivation of obedience instead of grace. It makes the perseverance of the saints meritorious instead of a gracious gift of God. In other words, it makes our grip of God the key to staying saved instead of God's grip on us. It it ignores the fact that when God saves someone, he also implants new desires in them and gives them the Holy Spirit to work in them to more intensely desire to do God's will and to do good works. It ignores the fact that good soil and good tree bears good fruit. It ignores the fact that God saved us to therefore, what? Conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It ignores the fact that God, that those God justifies, he also will glorify. James said, faith without works is dead. So we know that there is a species of faith that is not alive, but is dead faith. If someone's faith doesn't result in good works, or if it doesn't endure until the end, it was dead faith all along. Saving faith is always alive. Saving faith is enduring faith. We see that in Luke 8, 15, which says this. As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The good soil hears the gospel, holds fast to it. They continue to believe it, and with a good heart, they bear fruit in the gospel. 
When God saves you, he consequently produces good fruit in you. It's inevitable. It will happen if you're saved. And the good works is evidence that you have actually been saved. If the works aren't there, then your faith is dead, whatever you say. Eternal security doesn't encourage immorality. Anyone who uses eternal security as justification for their life of sin doesn't know the shepherd, isn't one of the sheep, or at least isn't proving it yet by their life. See, eternal security comforts and empowers the sheep to live for their good shepherd with deeper devotion and affection and obedience, for they know the love and care of the good shepherd. Sheep want to follow the shepherd, and they do follow the shepherd. Because they are hungry for him to take them into the abundant life. They want that abundant life. And so they're not going to settle for this other life in this other pasture, which is all barren, the wasteland of sin. They want the good, plush grass of the abundant life, which only Jesus, the good shepherd, can lead them to. Eternal security strengthens the resolve and determination for obedience in all the sheep. One of the other objections that you'll hear for eternal security is people who professed, people know, others who have professed faith in Christ, they might have been baptized, they might be very active in their church, but then they completely walk away from Jesus, walk away from the church, and and are like, well, there you have it. You can lose your salvation because I know this person who did exactly that. Pastor turned atheist or that type of thing. Consider just two points. They're simple. Number one, was their faith ever alive if it didn't endure to the end? Think about James 2, 17 and 26. And the second thing is, what about Judas? What about Judas? Judas was one of Jesus' elite 12. Judas looked like a disciple, like a legit follower of Jesus, In Luke 9, Judas had the power and authority of God. He cast out demons. He miraculously healed the sick. He proclaimed the gospel as an itinerant preacher. He spent much time with Jesus, being discipled by him, yet he was not a sheep and was lost. And the reason he was lost was to fulfill the prophecy written before Judas was ever born. He wasn't a sheep. And yet the disciples never suspected that Judas was the one to betray Jesus, It seemed like when you read the account that they were surprised that Judas was the one. On the outside, Judas was a sheep, but he really wasn't a sheep. He never repented. He never trusted in Christ. He never prized Christ. Folks, I just want you to know this. Jesus never loses the sheep. Have you ever really thought about Psalm 23, verse 4? Even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice David didn't have any fear. He didn't have any fear. Evil is really severe. Have you seen the evil of the world? I say ISIS and your mind probably goes to evil. This world is a cruel place and the valley of the shadow of death is terrifying. Now, what conquers fear in David? Is it not the presence of his good shepherd with him? You are with me. And why in the world would a beating stick, a rod, a weapon, and a staff comfort David? That's kind of interesting. 
It'd be like, your warm embrace comforts me. No, your rod, your beat stick, your nightstick. David was comforted that God would fight for him because he was a sheep and he needed the shepherd to defend him. So God would fight for him, God would protect him, God would rescue him, and God would lead him by the staff. Nothing or no one will treat you as well as the good shepherd Jesus Christ. Trust him, my friends. Follow him. Prove to be his sheep by your obedience to him. Be comforted by his care. Let that minister to you right where you are. In the middle of your pain, just be comforted that he will keep you, that he is with you, that he will lead you, that he loves you. Be comforted by his assurance of salvation by looking to the great lengths that Jesus goes to secure your eternal life. He gave his life for you. He gave everything to have you. And he will have you. Eternal life is yours. Enjoy it. It's yours now, but it will be yours eventually. It's, it, it's the already, but not yet. We have it, but it's coming in full. And it's ours, and it's good, and we can't wait for it. Eternal life is yours because both Jesus and your Father want you to have that good gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the depth of Jesus' teaching here in John 10. It is an amazing, amazing passage of, of grace and of mercy, of your effectual call, of your sovereign election, of your atonement for the sheep and of the eternal security that you give, I pray that if someone is one of those sheep this morning that is very easily bruised, that, that is a sensitive sheep, that you would build them up, give them hope and courage and strength and confidence in what their good shepherd has accomplished for them and help them to trust, to know and to trust your incredible love for them. That you would never, ever, ever let anything happen to your sheep that would somehow take them away from your fellowship and your green pastures and the abundant life. But God, I pray that the sheep would not grow too confident or have confidence in themselves because we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the very next phrase says, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So our perseverance is your grace working in us. So help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and with great zeal wanting to follow the good shepherd anywhere he leads. God, we need your Holy Spirit to do this in us. Keep us by your grace. And we know that your promises to us say that you will. So I pray that that fuels our joy, fuels our good works, fuels our sleep at night fuels our, our anticipation of eternity. Oh, God, we love the Good Shepherd because of what he has done for us. And I pray that everything, everyone hearing this, God would respond to the Good Shepherd, would trust him and love him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.